Hey there, and welcome to Church of the Beloved's weekly sermon podcast. My name is Kevin Zoe, and I serve on staff as the production manager here at COTB. Today's message is brought to us by Elder Michael Morgan. He's preaching from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, and verses 25 through 32. So forgive me if it takes a moment to get to this passage from Ephesians 4 to bring out what I think the text is telling us and kind of our particular moment in time. We want to talk a little bit about loneliness first. Uh, So here's what I'd like us to do. Just if you can, swivel your head and take a quick look at at the auditorium, all the the people surrounding you. Um, I'm going to bring up a few stats. Um, These are from a book called The Loneliness Epidemic by Susan Metz, Lost Connections by Johan Hari, and um, the NPD group, who just collects stats. So imagine this room you just have seen represents America kind of demographically. 62 of us in this room, assuming normal numbers for today, which it looks about right, 62 of us would say we report feeling lonely on an almost daily basis. 56 would say that their relationships are not meaningful. 68 would say that they eat every single meal alone, and that includes families, by the way. 70 of us would say that no one knows them well. And if you asked all of us how many people we felt we knew who we could turn to in a real crisis, the most common answer would be zero. So a lot of forces, I think, contribute to our loneliness as modern people, many of which kind of precede our births. They've kind of fallen out of our, our consciousness. Um, things that you wouldn't associate with loneliness, like the existence of air conditioning and uh, television, but it actually turns out this kind of had an important impact on Americans and how lonely they feel. So like with the advent of air conditioning, on summer nights, people are a lot more inclined just to stay inside, never to leave their house because it's more comfortable, and they have kind of a source of endless entertainment in there with uh, radio and television. To give a sense of how significant that is, because it, it sounds kind of abstract, between 1985 and 1994, active involvement in U.S. community organizations, so that's like um, churches, softball leagues, knitting clubs, the whole thing, uh, dropped by 45% in just nine years. And it's gotten significantly worse since then. Then, as kind of loneliness is on the rise at this precise point in time, the internet comes on the scene. And what makes this, I think, particularly pernicious is that uh, the internet seems to promise what we most desire, connection, right? We're lonely and we turn to the internet because, look, there's literal millions of online communities you can get plugged into. Uh, But as we all know, I think there's shortcomings with these sorts of online relationships. Um, My parents always used to give me this line growing up about, like, needing face-to-face interaction, and that's why you had to get off the internet. And there's something to that, but I don't think it's the full picture and maybe not even the most important part of the picture. Uh, In virtue of relationships being online, you have kind of like absolute control over when and how you present yourself. So um, if you have a bad day or a bad week, you don't need to mention it, and your friends won't know or be able to tell, online at least. And if you don't want to talk today, you can just pretend your microphone's broke, or if you're getting annoyed, you can just turn your camera off and pretend like you're there and paying attention. Point being, online presentation is kind of really controlled, really manipulable. And it's really difficult to guarantee a sincere relationship in that context. In order to really like challenge and be challenged by your friends, you need to be living life together, right? Uh, People need to see you at your worst as well as your best and kind of speak into your life at those most important moments. So the problem with online relationships is kind of like similar to the problem of social media, right? You can present your life as perfect when in fact it, it is not. Um, But you might say, of course, like, well, look, uh, Elder Mike, we're all at this church, we're all in the same room, so we probably avoid most of these problems, right? Especially as church-going Christians, seems like a good community. Well, it turns out, at least nationally, that church-attending Christians report feeling um, lonelier, actually, than religious people who don't attend church. 
and this is maybe the more significant point, Christians say that loneliness is embarrassing at almost three times the rate of non-Christians. Probably because we feel like we shouldn't be lonely given that we're like attending church, um, but that probably leads to an underreporting of loneliness among Christians. And in addition, uh, these studies kind of indicate that the loneliest demographics in America, or at least one of the loneliest, is uh, young people and people who live in cities. So, you know, look to your left and look to your right. Uh, that's, that's who we got. So why is it that Christians aren't doing better? We go to small groups, we go to these sort of church lunches, and yet we're still lonely. Well, I think what researchers have kind of started to discover, and I think this tracks with many of our experience, um, is that number of kind of interpersonal contacts, as they would describe it, like the amount of people you interact with and talk with every day, doesn't track super well with reported loneliness. Uh, there's a correlation there, but it's not as strong as you might expect. What tracks a lot better is the sense that you aren't sharing anything that really matters with the people around you. Like, so maybe you interact on a day-to-day -day basis, but you feel like you're just not getting at what is really important. And that's maybe the worst feeling type of loneliness, because not only are you lonely, you feel like you shouldn't be lonely. So what would that look like in the church? Uh, apparently 22% of young Christians say that they're skeptical of Christianity, but are afraid to bring it up in church for fear of kind of how they will be judged and how it will alienate them from the body. 30% of young Christians say that they're like frustrated or disenchanted with the church because of hypocrisy, basically, failure for it to live up to its own values. But again, it's difficult to bring up in a church context for fear of kind of alienation. For us, um, I think this might mean that we just walk around all the time with thoughts and feelings and convictions and problems that we never really share with anyone for fear of how they're gonna react or fear that they will not understand. We're completely alone yet surrounded by people. And loneliness has kind of a significant effect on us as human beings. There's physical and also psychological um, responses. Physical, um, so it turns out, that the kind of stress response, at least in terms of hormones, like cortisol and this sort of thing, is um, as intense in periods of acute loneliness as it is being physically attacked. So they studied this basically by asking people to kind of spit into a little tube whenever they felt their most lonely, and the stress hormones skyrocketed. Uh, and this is probably part of the reason why lonely people are more likely to die from all causes, develop chronic illness, um, this sort of thing. But the more significant effect, and the one I really want to dive into, is a weird psychological effect of loneliness. The lonelier you are, the more skeptical you become of the people around you. Lonely people can identify threats at almost twice the speed of people who say they're well-connected. Explanation being, uh, look, if you think no one is looking out for you, you kind of have to look out for yourself all the more, but that creates a self-sustaining cycle of loneliness. The lonelier you are, the less likely you are to get connected because the more skeptical you are of the people around you, more likely to see offense where none is intended, for example. So the sermon is about how to grow together. Um, I, want to begin, I wanted to begin by talking about loneliness because a prerequisite for growing together is just being together in the first place, which sounds basic, but it turns out it's really difficult. To be real humans, face-to-face, -face, sharing thoughts and values and emotions and fears, and without that, discipleship, growing together, is impossible. Without that, we're just a bunch of lonely people in a room together pretending to be honest. So turning to Ephesians 4, verses 4 through 6 and 25. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. 
one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's over all and through all and in all. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. So Paul's saying here, look, we're united in Christ first and foremost, equal before God because all have sinned and all have fallen short, all undeserving and yet all saved by grace, all members of one body because all united in serving as we were first served. And because we're one body, Paul reasons, we must speak the truth to one another. And there's two ways to fail to do that. One is by outright lying, which we might call sins of commission, but there's also by not speaking at all omission, failing to tell the truth, failing to share the things that you really think and feel. So we need to share our thoughts and feelings. To use the metaphor of the body here, otherwise the hand is not going to know what the head is thinking, nor the eyes what the ear is hearing. We need to be communicating honestly and authentically to be a functioning body, which would involve saying things like this to one another on a regular basis, that I am lonely, I feel disconnected, that I disagree, or that I strongly disagree, that I'm really struggling, or I'm unsure if any of this stuff is true, and I wonder if it's all just made up. Now, if you're like me, you have thoughts like these all the time, but kind of keep them bottled up inside. And I really am truly preaching to myself here. Um, something comes up in conversation at lunch or in a community group, and you have something that, to share, and you know that that thing kind of matters, it's important but you start thinking about how the people around you are gonna react if you share that thing. These thought patterns look something like this. I think you know, this person is wrong, uh, but if I tell them what I think, they're gonna be offended, one, and two, they probably won't even take me seriously. These sorts of conversations don't go anywhere, so I better not bring it up at all. Or my opinion is unpopular here, and if I share it, I'm gonna be effectively canceled. I should really keep it to myself. Or, look, I really messed up. I need to confess, but if I share, my community group is gonna look down on me. They're gonna think less of me, and I just wanna belong, so better, better keep it closed up. Or I don't really know where I'm at spiritually, but if I start talking about this church, these people are gonna think less of me. And naturally, when you think thoughts like these, uh, you feel lonely. You're not sharing the stuff that really matters with the people around you. And I know this does not describe everyone at our church. Um, if it doesn't describe you, God bless you. You're such a gift to our church, truly. Um, hopefully this sermon will help you understand where those of us who are more reserved are coming from, what's, what's going on in here. The hard lesson I've been learning, though, uh, is this, that those sorts of thought patterns are not the result of being lonely, as if I wouldn't feel lonely if only the people around me were more like me. Uh, these thought patterns are the cause of loneliness. When you think like this, the real people who are kind of in front of you, who you're talking to, may as well not be there. Because think about what happens. You're imagining inside your own head about how they are going to react or they're not going to react, what they're going to say or maybe what they're not going to say. And then you get angry or disappointed in their imagined response. Uh, then you hold it against them, right, which just reinforces your own loneliness. And all of this, of course, is happening inside the bounds of our own heads. We don't even give the people in front of us a chance. I think we like to tell ourselves the myth that the reason we're lonely is because the people who happen to be around us just aren't enough like us. And if only we were surrounded by people more like us, then we wouldn't be lonely. But I think the terrible truth is this, uh, that we're always going to feel lonely unless we're first vulnerable with one another. 
Now, it's not to say that we couldn't do better as a church to kind of create spaces where people are more comfortable being vulnerable, though I think it's always going to be somewhat uncomfortable. Being conscious of, for example, how like social media posts or offhand comments, especially about contentious topics, are going to be received by people who disagree with us, rightly or wrongly, how it will be perceived. But none of that mitigates the fact that unless you let other people kind of inside the bounds of your own head, they can never get in. You will always feel lonely. This is why Paul says, therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. Because we are one body in Christ, we've got to be authentic and sincere with one another, speaking truthfully. Otherwise, we dishonor Christ. So last year, um, right after I was ordained as an elder, I kind of got convicted that I had taken a number of um, oaths in my life, made a few commitments, uh, really formal ones, right? So I'm thinking of my wedding vows, I'm thinking of the membership covenant here that I signed my name to, and I'm thinking of the vows I made when I was ordained as an elder. And despite the fact that I had made those commitments, I didn't know exactly what was in them. Like, I kind of knew generally, like, what I said and whatnot, but, like, word for word and what I actually committed myself to, I wasn't totally sure. Um, so I, I printed out all these, um, all these commitments I'd made, and I stuck them in my Bible, and I started reading these things um, after my devotions every day. One of the things that uh, stuck out to me is about halfway through our membership covenant. It reads as follows. Community requires openness. Therefore, I covenant to foster relationships of authenticity and transparency by letting the people in the community into my heart and life. This cites James 5.16, which reads, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. And what I was struck by is both how simple and obvious this is, of course community requires openness, and how incredibly difficult it is. And what would our community look like, I started to wonder, if we were to really live this out. Paul gives us a sort of vision for what this community could be. Ephesians 4, verse 29. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what's helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Paul tells us that to live out this community of authenticity and transparency, we must not speak to cut one another down, right, but to build one another up. And for the things that we struggle to bring out into the open, that's pretty difficult, actually. Because oftentimes, the things that we struggle to bring out in the open um, are the things that really matter and the things that you're inclined to kind of have high emotional reactions to, right? And you can speak out of bitterness or resentment or anger or frustration. But there's another reason, Paul says, and another way to bring those things out into the open, which is to speak the truth in love in order to build one another up. So two points I want to make about this. The first is this. Like, if, if you really disagree with someone, right, if you believe that, you know, they're living in a way or they think something that pushes them away from Christ, if you love that person, that kind of requires bringing it out into the open, right? To point them to Christ by pointing them to the truth, helping one another to love Christ more. Now, of course, there's wisdom that's needed there. Um, how to deliver the truth is also important. We need to be conscious of who we're talking to, where they're at, how to deliver a potentially challenging talk. Everyone's different. We don't approach everyone the exact same way. But to really believe you've, you've got something, that this is, this is true, to love the person is to bring that out into the open, to try to point one another towards Christ. Second point I want to make is this, uh, a note on that phrase, building up, to speak to build one another up. I think we see this a lot in Scripture, this phrase, building up. 
Um, but it's important to keep in mind that we are only ever building up on a foundation that Christ has already laid. Which is to say, we don't change hearts. Scripture is pretty clear about this. God changes hearts. But that means when we're aiming to speak to build one another up, we need to presuppose that Christ is already working in our neighbor's hearts. Now, it sounds basic, but I think it's really profound. What would it look like? So let's return to those sort of lonely thought patterns, right, where you imagine other people's responses and then get angry at something that they didn't actually say. Uh, what if you trusted, actually, instead of imagining that they were going to respond negatively, that Christ is already at work in that person's heart? To trust that they wouldn't respond by rejecting you or shaming you or misunderstanding you, but actually respond in love? And what if we gave one another the chance, just the opportunity to live out Christ on a sort of regular basis? Because it's a really powerful thing to be on the receiving end of this, I think. If you've ever had someone kind of believe in you, maybe even more than you believed in yourself, it gives you a sort of power to be your better self that you didn't even know was in you. Uh, so I think of this scene from Dostoevsky's novel, The Brothers Karamazov. Um, Alyosha, who's a sort of Christ figure in this novel, has just suffered a terrible blow to his faith. Um, so in the Russian Orthodox Church, he was led to believe that the body of a saint, when they have passed, will not decay. But Elder Zosima, who's his mentor, has just passed, and contrary to what his faith has led him to believe, his body starts to decay. And full of despair, despair and doubt, he wanders to Grushenka's house, um, who's a sort of Mary Magdalene figure in the novel basically for the reason of being seduced. It is low. Grushenka, in contrast, is a character who's full of kind of shame and bitterness over her own past failings and aims to control anyone and everyone around her, to manipulate them as kind of a way to cope. So Alyosha and Grushenka, who are both kind of at low points, both at their worst, meet for the first time. But as soon as they meet, Alyosha catches a glimpse, and just a glimpse, of something kind of beautifully and wonderfully human in Grushenka. He sees genuine kindness flash across her face, just, just for a moment, amidst a flurry of her kind of characteristic manipulative remarks. And instead of explaining away that moment of true humanity, because there's a lot of evidence to the contrary, this is not her character, Alyosha focuses his attention on it. He sees Christ working in her just, just a bit. And he communicates this to her. He says that she's first and foremost a beloved, beloved treasured soul, his sister. And when Grushenka hears this, she finds like a gratitude and Christ-like love in her soul that she didn't even know was there. She thought was dead and gone. Alyosha, in virtue of his faith in her, in virtue of his faith that Christ was working in her soul, kind of calls her into her higher and better self. And she, in turn, then, is able to see something in Alyosha that he can't even see in himself, Christ working through him, Christ's love. And encouraged by that, Alyosha is then able to return to the monastery and confront his doubt by believing in one another, by focusing their attention on the fact that Christ is at work in the other person's heart, in the other person's soul, despite the evidence. They build each other up in Christ. And what if we were the sort of community that could do that for one another? Believe in one another. Call one another out to live. Live out Christ. Now, of course, to do this, you need to be open to the possibility that the person you're talking about, something that matters with, an important disagreement, for instance, might have something to teach you as well because Christ is working in their heart as well. That's what it means to presuppose Christ, to be open to the fact that you are wrong. If you approach a conversation without being open to that possibility, uh, you just end up being two lonely people talking at each other, right? not with each other. You need to be open to the possibility that you're wrong. This reminds me of a prayer from St. Francis of Assisi, um, just one line of it. 
Let me not so much seek to be understood as to understand. Now, of course, we're going to fail at this as a community. Um, this is, of course, the obvious undercurrent to everything I've been saying. Sometimes you're going to be vulnerable and someone is going to fail you. Sometimes someone's going to be vulnerable with you and you're going to fail them. You'll take the risk and you'll be hurt at the response. Our conflict will happen. Turns out uh, our membership covenant predicts this. Uh, immediately following this bit on community requiring openness, it reads as follows. When sinful people are together, conflicts are inevitable. Therefore, I covenant to hum humbly and authentically seek to preserve the unity of the body and to patiently cultivate genuine love between members, looking to Christ as our example and helper. We desire to be the first to acknowledge our own sin and to apologize and repent. And this bit of the covenant cites our passage for today, Ephesians 4, verses 31 to 32, which reads, Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as Christ in God forgave you. Paul's idea is as simple, I think, as it is difficult, um, and there's no sort of explanation that makes it easier. When someone fails you, forgive, as Christ has forgiven you, and count it a blessing to be able to, in this small way, participate in God's love. And when you fail, ask for forgiveness, and call this community into Christ by giving it the chance to forgive you. Now, we'll take communion in a moment here. Um, and towards the end of the communion script, we have a note which reads, if you are a believer, but you're in conflict with another brother or sister in Christ, the Bible warns you should not partake, but go to them and resolve your issues first so that the body can be in harmony. It's worth clarifying that the word conflict is not meant to just include like every old relational tension. That's just kind of what being in community amounts to. Uh, what 1 Corinthians 11 warns us against is partaking in communion in what it calls an unworthy manner. In this context, this refers to the practice of some believers in the Corinthian church who are in kind of explicit and visible disunity with other members of the church, usually due to either their social or their economic status. Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 29, for those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. As I hope this message is made clear, to discern the body of Christ means to recognize that we're all members of a single body, together. To partake of communion, then, is to be committed to not excluding or canceling anybody, but to recognize that we're all members of a single body, and that through disagreement, through conflict, through pain, we'll still pursue Christ together. So if you come to the table while being in conflict to such a degree that you would not be willing to speak to or work with another member of the body of Christ. That would be the time to take that warning seriously. Now, of course, note, not every relationship is gonna be mended in this life, and I'm not suggesting that you try to open up lines of communication in extreme, extreme cases like um, abuse, but what it does mean is that you have aimed to make amends where it's wise and where it's possible. So to not partake in a given week uh, because of such a conflict does not mean that you're a failure. Um, or that you're undeserving, because communion has never been about deserving, um, deserving it. Rather, it's just Christ's call to you to restore unity to the body. Um, I'm going to go ahead and invite the band back up, um, and I will close our time in prayer. Thanks for tuning into this week's COTB Sermon Podcast. For more info or to connect with us online, you can find us at cotb.life.